0: I was a freshman in college way back in 2003, okay? Way back, yeah, I know, a long time ago. Hard to remember, really. 2003, I was in this class. I was at Chabot College right here in beautiful Hayward, California. And I was a freshman. And I was in my big lecture class, sitting in class. I was listening. I'm a good student. And the teacher looks right at me and says, don't sleep in my class. And I thought, you're not talking to me. I'm awake. I'm looking at you. And she says it again, don't sleep in my class. And now I, I know she's looking at me, and I, I'm very confused right now. I'm thinking, this, what? How? And people are looking at me, and I'm thinking, what is happening here? And she says it a third time, and I'm very confused, and then my eyes open, <laughs> and I had been dreaming. But unfortunately, what I was dreaming about was actually happening in real waking life. And I was in class and she's staring at me. And I was, oh, and I was apologetic and everyone laughed and I felt horrible. And then I, you know, and then I moved on with my life and I'm here today. But <laughs> there are those times in our lives where sometimes, when, even with regards to the scriptures, where we're kind of asleep to what's really happening. I thought I was awake, present, available for answering questions in class. But when in fact I was actually sound asleep. I was not aware of what was going on, and I had a kind of peripheral awareness of what was going on. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of times he talks about these things in the law. You've heard it said, the, something, but I tell you this. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you something bigger, something that you didn't think about before. Here's what he says. You have heard it that it was said, to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Seems pretty simple at first. Do not murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's, the, it's easy. Don't, don't murder. That's pretty straightforward. I can do that. Got a pat on the back. I've not murdered anyone recently. That's good. Or ever, ever, never, ever murdered anyone. That's good. And probably for most of us in this room, we've never murdered anyone, and we've heard it said, do not murder, the Ten Commandments. All right, that one, check. Not murdered. I will not, if I don't do it in the future, I'll be good on that one. I'll be good. But Jesus expands it and he does something bigger. And maybe people were not awake and aware of what the true intention of the law. Uh, Last week we talked about Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Remember in verse 17, we're in chapter 5 of Matthew. In verse 17 he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So sometimes fulfillment is completion. He's fulfilled it. It's done. So we don't sacrifice animals at a temple anymore because Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, they brought sacrifices and animals and grain and wine offerings to the Lord and they'd present them to them and they'd burn them as an offering. We don't do that anymore because Jesus was the fulfillment of that. Jesus sacrificed himself and now we're done with it. That's over. He has fulfilled it. So in that way, fulfillment is completed. But another way we might be see fulfillment and Jesus fulfilling the law is giving us the full meaning of the law. You have heard it said, do not murder. Do not murder. Everyone got that. See, murder has been around forever. Murder has been around since the second generation of humankind when Cain murdered Abel. Remember that at the beginning? If you, if, it's in right, way back at the beginning of your Bible. Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They have two, two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel offers a sacrifice to God that is pleasing to God. Cain offers a sacrifice to God that is not pleasing to God. Cain gets really jealous of Abel, and he kills him. He kills his brother. And from there, from the start, we have the first murder. It's there. And they knew it was bad. Cain knows it's bad. He's judged because it's bad. So when the Ten Commandments roll around, this isn't news. Oh, do not murder all, all, most and most every society that's ever existed has considered murder to be bad, to not be good for society, to not be good for human flourishing and good, good governance and things like that. Murder is bad. So when Moses comes off Mount Sinai with two stone tablets bearing the Ten Commandments and he starts listing them off and gets to do not murder, there's not a bunch of, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I just murdered someone earlier. I wish someone told me earlier today. I wouldn't have done it. It's not like people had knives just ready to go and stab someone. Oh, I guess I can't. God said, do not murder. No, God's codifying. Hey, just so you know, this is a huge priority to me, your God. Do not murder each other. Do not murder each other. And Jesus says, you understood the plain meaning of that. Don't murder. Don't kill. Don't kill out of anger. Don't kill out of these reasons. Don't murder. So people, you might pat yourself on the back and think, I'm okay. But Jesus fulfills the law and tells people the spirit of the law. And the spirit behind the law is one of anger, is one of hatred. Sometimes we look at the letter of the law. Do not murder. Okay, that's good. But we forget the spirit of the law. I have a three-year-old son, Mason, and I have a five-month-old daughter, Campbell. And Mason, Campbell has her little, you know, those exer saucer things, the things they kind of suspend them up and they have, they can spin around it and have little do-hookies they can play with and all that type of thing. And Campbell loves her exer saucer. We call it her business center because I, I just like to imagine her spinning around making calls and deals and things like that. <laughs> so we put her in there, and she's having a good time. But Mason loves to go up, and it kind of bounces. has some springs in it, and Mason likes to bounce it while she's in there. And, I, buddy, 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 stop. Don't touch that. And so he stops touching it, but he does one of these, you know, gets as close as he can to without touching it. You know, and that's the letter of the law is don't touch it. The spirit of the law is get away from her. Go away. Leave your sister alone. Sometimes he thinks, I don't want to have to explain to him. No, I, it's not that I don't want your hand to the atoms of your hand and the atoms of the exorciser to come into contact with each other. I want you to go away. Leave her alone the spirit of the, the letter of the law is don't kill people don't murder them the spirit of the law is something entirely more profound and almost more disturbing because it's one thing to be judged for killing somebody it's another thing that if you are angry with your brother you'll be subject to judgment it's another thing to call someone raka, which is an old uh, This old term in Jesus' day that meant empty-headed, like someone calling someone an empty head. Then you're uh, answerable to the Sanhedrin, the religious high council. Think if you called someone an empty head and you got dragged in front of a judge. That'd be kind of, we'd all be in front of judges. (laughs) But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. There's lots of people that might think, if I murder someone, I'm going to go to hell. There's not a lot of us that think, oh, I called that guy a fool. I might go to hell now. But Jesus is saying, wake up to the truth of the law. It's not just about killing people. It's about what's in your heart. It's about what's in here. And there's other cultures. I had a professor in, uh, in, at Biola University. And he was a missionary in Izmir, Turkey. And he wanted to explain to us sometimes how name-calling in different cultures can be a big deal. And so he's on this bus, public transit in Turkey, and these two older guys start fighting. They just start yelling at each other and calling each other names. And they have, you know, they, they live in a culture that respects their elders. So everyone's just kind of sitting there and letting, like, let them hash it out. Let them just yell at each other. And it keeps escalating, getting more and more whipped up. People start saying meaner and meaner things. Then one of these old guys calls the other one, gets up and says, You're a dog. Now, if you don't know this, in many Middle Eastern cultures, and even in Jesus' day, calling someone a dog is about the worst thing you could possibly call someone. So the bus driver slams on the brakes. My professor is just shocked, just watching this all happen. Everyone turns around in shock and looks at this man who would dare to call someone else a dog, this younger, burlier guy stands up, grabs the old guy that called the other one a dog, takes him to the back of the bus, someone else opens the door on the back of the bus, and he heaves him out the back of the bus onto the road, and they drive off. So sometimes you call someone a name, you might get in trouble. John th- uh, 1 John 3.15 uh, says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So Jesus is saying, you know, if if it wasn't clear from what Jesus is saying, that if you call someone a fool, you might be in danger of the fires of hell, John makes it really clear, if you hate someone, you're a murderer. He doesn't mince words here. He's not making it nice and, you know, well, you're kind of, you're bad, kind of like a murderer. No. If you hate your brother, if you hate someone else, if you hate someone, You're a murderer. And you might think, well, I haven't actually killed someone. It's not so bad. But in God's eyes, a heart that's filled with anger, a heart that's filled with rage, a heart that's filled with hate, a heart that's filled with ill will towards others is no better than hands that are covered in the blood of murder. It's not better and we might look at this and say well it's it's just not it's just not all that it's not that bad but jesus is saying wake up to what's really god's law is all about and here's the part that's really troubling to me is sometimes i look at our world and i look at christian our christian subculture who we are as christians and i look at what the world sees about us and even what we see about ourselves and a lot of times it's really upsetting to me because when i look at christians sometimes i think we can be the meanest people in the world, the most angry, hate-filled people there are. I mean, I look at, I have lots of friends on Facebook from Christians, non-Christians, people from here, people from all over the place. And I look at, you know, looking at my feed, and the most troubling, angry, hate-filled, disturbing things I see are from people that I know profess to know Jesus. And I think, what is, what is this? You, have you heard that statistic that tips are the lowest on Sunday after church? If you go to a restaurant, that means we are the ones that are going to restaurants after church, and then we're not giving anyone tips. That's just not the love. That's not what we should be about. One time, I was over here. It's no one in this room, hopefully. But I was getting ice out of an ice machine, okay? I was getting for an event. So I was getting ice out of an ice machine scooting, and someone came into the room, and she used her body to push my tiny body out of the way and said, I need ice too. I started scooping ice. And then she turned, and I had a name tag on because I was getting ready for a youth group and I had my name, you know, Pastor Ryan. And she's like, oh, Pastor Ryan, I didn't know it's you. And she bowed and backed out of the room. (laughs) Please don't bow to me. (laughs) But I thought, you know, I was thankful that she apologized, but I thought, she thought that I was just one of the other people that she could batter out of the way to get what she wanted. Here's the problem. We, we have an image problem, and we've created it. There was this uh, Christian author that did a survey, and he surveyed all sorts of people. And 40% of the people surveyed were not in the church or unchurched people that don't go to church, don't call themselves Christians or anything. So those people's view of us matter. Th- it matters. Because they're the lost people we're trying to reach. So here's what happened. So he asked them, when you think of Christians, when you think of a Christian, what do you think? What comes to mind? And here's what he found. 96% of those surveyed, when they said, what do you think of Christians? What comes to mind? One of the first things that came to mind was that they're anti-homosexuals. Not anti-homosexuality, Anti-people who identify themselves as homosexuals. Anti-homophobic, like, like disliking, hating people because of how they identify themselves. Because of that, that, their sexual orientation. And you look at that, and as a Christian, that doesn't square with who Christ was. Christ was known for hanging out with prostitutes, hanging out with tax collectors, hanging out with sinners. That's what he was known for. He was scandal, people tried to scandalize him because he, look at him, he's hanging out with all these, the riffraff and all these people. He was known for hanging out with people that were outcasts from their society, that were rejected because of the choices they had made and the sin, the sin that was in their life. That's what Jesus was known for. So the number one thing we're known for is hating a group of people. Number two, 87% of respondents said if, when they think of Christians, they think judgmental and angry. We, there's, there's verses about this. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Don't judge people. Don't just go around judging people. Don't have that kind of angry spirit in your heart. And yet, that's what we're known for. What we're known for. When it comes to mind, boom. That's what people jump to immediately. Christians and non-Christians. Number three. 81% of respondents, you probably expected this word, would designate us, Would think when they think about Christians, as hypocrites. Hypocritical. People who say they believe one thing, but do something different. We say we follow Jesus, but we're also known for being super mean and judgmental and angry towards people, when Jesus was something, someone who is different than that. And this is the part that's so troubling to me, because I think on the one hand, sure, we can say, well, that's, that's not entirely true, that's not how I am, but we're a part of the body of Christ. This is what the body of Christ is known for. That's what we're known for. And this is this is problematic. Gandhi, one of the most peaceful men to ever walk the face of the planet, maybe you've heard this quote said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. I like Jesus. I like what he's about. I like his story. I like what he teaches. I don't like the people that claim to follow him. And here's the second half of the quote. I actually not seen the second half of the quote, but the second half of the quote is, your Christians are so unlike Christ. Even when I was getting ready over the, you know, as I was really getting prepared and kind of amped up yesterday and Friday, that's when I start running through it and just thinking through all the, how I want to really present it, I thought, I got angry (laughs) with my son. In an unjust you know, there's some of you might be saying, Well, there's righteous anger. You know, Jesus got angry. Yes, that's true. But honestly, how many of us are usually righteously angry? And not angry because someone annoyed us, or uh, angry because our kid did something we asked him not to do, or we're angry because we got passed up for a promotion at work, or we're angry because we didn't get the pay we thought we deserved, or we're angry because someone cut us off on the way here, or we're angry because Chipotle ran out of chicken today and all he had was barbacoa or something we get angry we're it's usually not look if you're righteously angry that's fine your jesus was angry with right, with righteous righteously angered but that's typically just not our situation i found myself just getting irritated at my son and he's just being a boy nothing wrong it just bothered me and i'd snap at him and i found myself having to apologize to my son over and over and over again i thought man this is problematic because if it's just do not murder, if the law is just do not murder, I'm cool. I'm fine. I'm not, I'm not going to kill anyone. I haven't killed anyone. I'll be good. I can, I can probably make it few, the rest of my life without killing somebody. But if the law, if what it really means is don't be angry, unrighteously angry people, don't be hateful towards people, don't ever say a bad word about someone, I am in trouble because the kill count is rising You know, when you think about it in that way, when was the last time you got angry at someone and unrighteously? There, there's a lot more bodies in our wake. There's a lot more blood on our hands, and we might think, "Oh, the and it says that judgment's coming. Oh, it's it's not real. Yeah, it is real judgment. It's real judgment." If it's unresolved with God, it's real judgment that's coming. You're in danger of the fires of hell, and it's terrifying because you realize when you look at this, I can go without murdering someone. I can't go my entire life not being angry, not ever having hate towards someone, not ever doing those things. And it's You're in trouble. Now I'm in trouble. Now I'm... This is bad. It's bad. It looks bad because we can't do that I can't go a week, I can't go a day with, with my son without so, at some point thinking, I shouldn't have gotten angry for that, I should not have done that. I'm in trouble. But Jesus continues and explains to us that we're in trouble, but the gospel is a ministry of reconciliation. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, isn't about vengeance. It isn't about anger. It's about reconciliation. It's about rebuilding. It's about wholeness. And Jesus gives us two quick examples of what that might look like for us. In verse 23 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in, the, in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. The picture is someone at the temple bringing their offering. The animal, the grain, the wine, whatever it is, this offering. And they realize not that they've wronged someone, but that someone has a problem with them. Leave your gift. They leave their gift and they go and they do their best to be reconciled. Because the gospel isn't about anger It's not about vengeance, it's about reconciliation. Even helping, uh, being so concerned with someone else that you want to go and reconcile, help them be reconciled. You have such concern about your brother, your friend, your brother and sister in Christ, that they have unresolved issues that put them in danger of judgment. That you would go, leave your offering and go to them. And you would say, let's work this out, let's talk. And do everything you can to be a minister of reconciliation, to work at that, to work at wholeness, to work at relational unity. So some of us are here tonight, and you're offering beautiful songs of praise to God. And you're singing. You're singing with all your heart. Or maybe you're coming, and you're just, you're dropping in hundreds in the offering box, and that's great. You're offering this worship of God through the sacrifice of your finances. Maybe you're offering beautiful prayers You're saying these words to God, and you're saying, God, I love you. I want to follow you. I want to worship you with my entire—you're offering these beautiful prayers. But if there's unreconciled conflict in your life, God says, I don't care about all that stuff. I'd rather you go take care of that instead. I'd rather you go and reconcile than I would have you sit here and worship me and give me praise. Because that's that's how you truly worship me. That's how you really show my love. That's how you show the gospel. And Jesus did the same thing. Jesus left the glories of heaven from eternity past. You know, it's pretty, it's probably pretty sweet living in heaven. And he leaves that and he comes and he's born here on earth. He becomes a man. And he lives this life that we couldn't live. He's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He does all these things that we can't do. He not only doesn't kill anyone, but he never has hate in his heart. He never has unrighteous anger. He never calls anyone a name in that regard with hate in his heart. He's perfect in every way that you and I aren't perfect. He fulfills the law. He's the only one that can follow all ten commandments and all the other commandments perfectly and show us what they really mean and what they really look like and what his kingdom really is when people follow him. Jesus left all that for us. He left the glories of heaven and came to reconcile us to himself, to reconcile us to God, to fix that relationship, to repair those things. There's that picture of the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 22 through 26 is another picture or 25 to 26, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Good advice, good solid legal advice. It's better probably if you someone. It's probably better for you. If you are guilty, if you've wronged someone, it's good to settle. It's good to sort it out. It's good not to get in front of the judge. I remember when I was, I got my license at age 16. Right after I turned 16, I was in uh, in a band, which is cool, and I was in high school band, which is not as cool, but still pretty cool. And I was first year saxophone, which is really cool. And I worked up here at the church, and I did, went to youth group. And I did all sorts of things, and I, my parents were driving me everywhere, and they hated it. So they sold me. Their old their older car was a great deal, and they didn't cheat me. My parents were good people. And, they, and then the day I could go to the DMV and take my test, my mom had scheduled it. We went there, I passed, and she never drove me anywhere again. And it was a great day for her. I'm sure it's in her memory books and all these things. It's a great, fantastic day. But my dad always used to tell me, it takes five years to learn how to drive. And as a 16-year-old, I said, whatever. And some uh, approximately five years later, I turned 21 and I was up here with my family celebrating my 21st birthday. And a few days later, Pretty much exactly to the date of five years after I got my license, I was driving down to Biola University in Southern California, and I was driving on the five by the Citadel Outlets, which are, if you know of it, it's a great outlet mall that looks like a castle, and it's pretty cool. And I knew my gas light was on, and I knew I had to go get gas, so I was trying to get out, but there's pretty heavy traffic because it's Los Angeles, there always is, and so I was looking over my shoulder to see if there was space, and I turned around, and there's a person stopped right in front of me, and I... Ding, right into the back of the car, probably going five miles an hour. So we pull off to the side, and you know, when you're exchanging insurance information, I'm sorry, please, there's that magic number. If you get under, if the damage is under a magic number, you don't have to report to insurance. And that number, of course, at the time was $500. It didn't look like it did 500 uh, worth of dollars, worth of damage to her car. So I said, please, I mean, I'm really sorry, but... If it's under $500, i am totally happy to just pay. Let's not do this for insurance because I want to settle. I, want to, I don't want to go before the insurance company. I don't want to go in front of the judge. I want to take care of this. So I'm waiting, and she, of course, called insurance, and I raised my premiums and ruined my life. So it's worse to go that way. That was bad. I could have just paid $500, but who knows how much more I paid in insurance premiums or how much I made my parents pay in insurance premiums. It's better... To solve, it's better to reconcile quickly. It's better to figure these things out fast. Have you had an argument that's lasted forever? A conflict, a grudge that's lasted forever? It's soul sucking. It's horrible. It's better just to resolve it. But here's the other part it says when you're going to the judge, you want to settle. Because if you get to the judge, you're going to jail until you pay the last penny. The problem is if you're in jail, you're probably not working, you're probably not paying any pennies. And the reality here is, you and I, all of us, are on our way to a judge. We're all taking a journey to a judge. We will all stand before the throne of God and be judged. And we have a choice to make on the way there. We can choose to be reconciled to God through Christ. Or we can choose not to and face the judgment of God. And this is the ministry of reconciliation, that Jesus left the glories of heaven, that he came to earth and fulfilled the law. He died on the cross and rose again and says, I can reconcile you to God. Reconcile with me quickly. So when we stand before my Father, when we stand before God, when we stand before the judge, he'll rule in your favor. It's going to be good. You will spend an eternity with me. You are no longer in danger of the fires of hell. You are no longer in danger of judgment. You're saved. That's the beauty of the ministry of reconciliation. So we have this problem. Anger, murder is in our hearts. We're murderers because we're angry. We have the solution, which is great. Jesus died for our sins, and we can be reconciled to God. But now we want to be better. We want to say, what do I do? Do I just stop being angry? How do I do that? How can I be a part of the ministry of reconciliation? How do I change the perception? How do I change the perception of Christians to being one of hate and judgment, to one of love? How do I change the Gandhis of this world? So they say, I like Christ. I also like Christians because they're just like him. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not covet and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule love your neighbor as yourself love does no harm to its neighbor therefore love is the fulfillment Of the law. We could talk about how to manage your anger, but the solution to this problem of murder in our hearts, the solution to us all being murderers, is not stop being so angry, it's love other people. Jesus had every right to be angry. With us. He had every right to be angry with sinners, with prostitutes, with tax collectors. He had every right to be angry with them. But instead, he loved them. He had pity on them. He cared for them. He died for them. When we love other people, it pushes out anger. When I see how much I love my son, it's harder to be angry at him. When I love my wife, it's hard to be angry at her. When I, love, I work with children. I work, I'm the children's pastor. I had 380 kids here today. It would be really easy for me to be angry at a lot of them a lot of the time. But when you see them and you know, God loves these kids. I want to love these kids. I want them to see Jesus. It's a lot harder to be angry at them. It's a lot easier to overlook how they sin against me or against their teachers or whomever. It's easier to do those things. Easier to love. And we need to wake up to this reality and come out of this malaise that we think we're not in danger of judgment. No, we are. We're angry. And we need love to replace that anger. And when we have faith, when we follow God, when we love him, when we follow after him, when we pursue him, when we say, I want to be like Jesus, it's going to naturally take us to love. Because God is love. It's going to naturally take us to reconciliation, to reconciling, rebuilding with others, relationships with others, because that's what God did. Jesus' whole life is summed up in this moment where he breaks down the barrier between us and God and reconciles us through his death on the cross. It's a lot easier to do that. Early Christians, in the the early days of the church, they were known, there's a practice in Rome, that if you had a baby that was not up to standards, maybe had a physical deformity or anything like that, you would leave that baby out to die to be exposed, to be eaten by animals or whatever. That's what you would do. That was just common practice. That's what you did. And Christians were known for being the weirdos that went out and collected those babies, brought them into their home, and raised them as their own. They were known for that. They were known for that. Are we known for loving like that? Christians were also known. There's a plague that swept through the Roman Empire. And the Romans, people were dying, and the Romans were abandoning Those who were sick, you know, if your dad was sick, it's, sorry, dad, go away. You're out. Lock the door. Change the locks. We're done. We don't want to die. Christians were known for taking in the infirmed, bringing them into their houses, and some of them dying because as they cared, they became sick. That's what they were known for. I would love to be known for something like this. When we were here, here at our church, there was a guy a few years ago picketing at the bottom of the hill saying that, we were a church that hated homosexual people. That we didn't. We hated them. Had no grace or mercy, no love for them. And one of our volunteers was driving a bus, and he drove by, and he rolled down his window and said, "Hey, we don't. We don't hate you. Come on up, sit in church with me." And the guy said, "Okay," and put down his sign and came came to church with them. <laughs> Think of how that changed. The first time I ever spoke on a Sunday morning by myself, the training wheels were off. There was a guy picketing at the bottom of the hill, that said that we were a church that cared for people who were homosexual, they said, yeah, I want to be known for that. Jesus was a guy that was known for hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, all people, all sorts of people. I want to be known as a people, as a body of Christ that hangs out with anyone, that loves and cares for everyone, that shares the gospel of Jesus Christ and of reconciliation with everyone. We have a church full of murderers, and God loves us. We have anger in our hearts, and God loves us. Now we need to go and love and care for other people. So tonight, pray, ask God, search my heart, Lord. Wake me up to where I've been unaware of what's going on in my life, where the anger is, where the sin is in my life, where my heart is corrupt. Take that out and replace it with love. Take out anger and replace it with love. Not less anger. I want more love. I want more care. I want to reconcile. I want to be a part of your mission. I want to be a part of that. And I guarantee you, you're gonna ch- we're going to change lives. God's going to change lives through that. Because when we love people and they see Christ, they encounter Jesus, you can't help but be moved by that. And God will work through you. Let's be a, a ministry of reconciliation. Let's go and be reconciliation in our community. Let's go be love in our community. God loves a bunch of murderers, people with anger in their hearts. He loves all of us. Let's go be that love for others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for what you've given us. We thank you that even though you have churches, all churches across the world are filled with people who have murder in their hearts, Lord, that cannot fulfill your law, that cannot love in the way that you did while you were on earth, Lord. You care for us and you reconcile us anyway. So, Lord, replace the anger in our heart with love. Replace the hatred in our heart with a spirit of reconciliation, Lord. Help us to remember how you reconciled us through the cross. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We ask that anyone who needs to be reconciled to you tonight would do so. That they would cry out and ask for your forgiveness. And they would experience your love and the reconciliation that you have for them. Lord, let us be known as people of love as people of reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen.